Welcome back to the Social Psych of Prejudice. I'm Shana, and we're going to continue with a few last case studies to highlight some other important populations. Case study number four. 67-year-old Hispanic female presents to her cardiologist appointment to review testing she had completed. She presents with her daughter. Patient does not speak English, but daughter does, and she was planning to translate. After meeting physician, doctor tells family it's not the same if daughter translates what he says. Doctor states, I am an American and I was born here, and patient is criticized for not being able to speak English in America, saying she needs to learn it if she's here. Patient and daughter left and she did not hear the results of her tests. This was caught on camera by the family. It was a cardiologist out in California, and this happened in November of 2018, so it's fairly recent. I think the shame in this is that the patient actually is an American citizen, but it was assumed by the doctor that she wasn't due to the language barrier. I think something many of you can agree with is that language barrier can be one of the most frustrating obstacles in a patient encounter. Plain and simple, it just makes it more difficult to do your job, and that's understanding, but the words and assumptions expressed by the provider were still definitely prejudiced and unacceptable. Race and ethnicity are highly researched in regards to healthcare disparities in the U.S. But before we get the ball rolling on this, we need to discuss the difference between race and ethnicity because they are distinct concepts and it's one of my biggest pet peeves when people don't know the difference. So race typically prompts you to think of people who share the same skin color and associated physical qualities. The U.S. Census Bureau have defined these races. Caucasian, African-American, Asian, American Indian or Alaska Native, and Native Hawaiian or other Pacific Islander. Ethnicity refers to non-physical cultural characteristics like national origin, language, religion, sense of cultural identity. This means that Hispanic or Latino is not a race people, it's an ethnicity. That's why you see non-Hispanic white option on forms, because technically their race could be white, but their ethnicity is Latino or Latina. Blaine and McClure Brenchley give the great example that, even though they would share the same racial label as black, African Americans and Caribbean Americans have different ethnicities. So I hope this makes sense, because it's important to know the difference. Alright, important health disparities to mention. Sources for this come from Centers of American Progress, Centers for Medicare Advocacy, Healthy People 2020, and the CDC. Despite coverage gains with the ACA, minorities are still more likely to be uninsured compared to whites, Hispanics being one of the lowest populations to be insured. One third of Hispanics lack a usual source of health care or a primary care provider. Hispanics have higher rates of end-stage renal disease, secondary to diabetes, and they are 50% more likely to die from diabetes compared to non-Hispanic whites. One-fifth of Latinos report avoiding medical care due to language barriers. Obesity rates among blacks are higher than whites in nearly every state of the nation. Black men are more likely to die from cancer than white men. White women are more likely to develop breast cancer compared to black women, but blacks are more likely to die from it. Native Hawaiian or Pacific Islander populations have higher rates of smoking, alcohol consumption, and obesity compared to whites. 
Compared to other racial and ethnic groups, American Indian and Alaska Native youth have more serious mental health problems like depression, anxiety, and substance abuse. Blacks have a higher prevalence of asthma and black children have a 260% higher emergency department visit rates and hospitalization rates and a 500% higher mortality rate compared to whites. The mortality rates from cancer, heart disease, and diabetes of minorities are significantly higher than whites and the Urban Institute calculated that Medicare would save $15.6 billion per year if health disparities were eliminated meaning if we were able to decrease the morbidity and mortality of minorities to the same prevalence as whites for these health issues. There is an excellent article published in the Journal of National Medical Association by Dr. Nelson on behalf of the Institute of Medicine that pulled some great information together from the literature on unequal treatment and racial and ethnic disparities in healthcare. Important facts included were that racial and ethnic disparities exist even when insurance, income, age, and severity of conditions are compatible. Racial and ethnic minorities are more likely to refuse treatment than whites, but the difference is so small and it does not fully explain healthcare disparities. And importantly, the differences in healthcare treatment and outcomes occur in the context of broader historic and contemporary social and economic inequality and persistent discrimination in many sectors of the American life. This is critical and huge that this was published because it's hard to get the general public to realize that systematic oppression of minorities is real. And as health professionals, we should care because the numbers of morbidity and mortality of these populations do not lie. Moving on, case study number five. Dr. Whitgob, a Jewish doctor, was listening to an oral report from an intern about a patient that had presented to the ER. At the end of the oral report, the intern stated that the father of the patient looked at the intern's name tag and asked, is that a Jewish last name? I do not want a Jewish doctor. The plot twist is that the intern was not Jewish, but Dr. Whitgob is. This case is simply a reminder that we too will face prejudice in the healthcare field by our race, gender, age, sexual orientation, hair color, piercings, and tattoos. And I don't want this message to be lost on us. This is something we as healthcare professionals need to be prepared for because our actions will be monitored. I remember going into a patient encounter with my preceptor on rotations and the patient looked at my badge and then said no offense and then went on to explain to my preceptor who was a doctor that they didn't want to be seen by his PA because it's an expensive copay and they didn't want to waste it on the PA when they could be seeing a doctor. There are two things I want you to take away from this. One, if you ever have to start a sentence with no offense, stop yourself immediately, do not pass go. Do not collect $200, you need to count to 10 and you need to rethink your logic behind the statement you're about to make because you know deep down what you're going to say is probably offensive. And two, you need to remember that you have to choose to be offended. Everyone is entitled to their own opinion and whether or not you take it to heart is your choice. There is one other population I wanted to discuss specifically, which is our poverty-stricken and homeless populations. I'll present this to you a little differently in terms of the fact there is no provider-patient interaction to break down. We're just going to kind of take a look at the overview of a history of this patient and put it into perspective. If you desire to read case studies similar to how we were previously doing, there are thousands if you Google homeless discrimination or even events of hospital dumping. 
Anywho, this case is coming from an article by Stafford and Wood published in the Journal of Environmental Research and Public Health. Case study number six. 35-year-old indigenous man identifies the street as where he most frequently sleeps. His highest level of schooling was year eight. His first contact with the adult healthcare system was in 2005 when he was hit by a car at the age of 22 years old, causing severe injuries. By this time, he had already had severe ataxia and intellectual impairment from heavy solvent and alcohol abuse during his teenage years. In 2012, he had a further major car accident, causing multiple leg fractures, and by 2013, he was permanently wheelchair-bound, homeless, and a frequent user of street drugs, solvents, and alcohol. He reports being regularly assaulted and having multiple interactions with police. He has a combination of permanent physical disability, lack of mobility, brain injury, and vulnerability to attack and coercion. Hospital use by this patient for a 27-month period from January 2015 to March 2017 were estimated. The costs of 51 emergency department presentations and 28 inpatient admissions amounted to $299,460. In total, this represents a cost to the health system of almost $333,000 or $12,000 per month over a 27-month period. Homelessness is associated with enormous health inequalities, shorter life expectancy, and greater use of acute services. According to a study published in the Journal of General Internal Medicine by Wen et al., there are over 800,000 Americans who are homeless. With their daily struggle to meet basic living needs and lack of insurance, Homeless individuals have a high burden of illness and are at increased risk of premature death. They also have increased prevalence of mental health conditions and substance abuse. Additionally, this study discussed that homeless people's attitudes towards health care affects their likelihood of seeking care in the future. Several homeless participants were interviewed and asked to describe health care encounters. A majority felt unwelcomed and discriminated against. They felt stereotyped and stigmatized as freeloaders. Those who felt unwelcomed felt this way because they perceived that the provider reduced them to an object and was unwilling to know them and unwilling to empathize with them. They didn't feel listened to. We need to realize that those who are homeless have dehumanizing experiences on a daily basis. People laugh, stare, and judge them based on their appearance daily. They are constantly made to feel like they are a burden to society. This population is aware of our body language and they're hypersensitive to negative treatment. There is a correlation between their perception of feeling dehumanized and decreased likelihood of seeking healthcare in the future, which should be troublesome to us, especially because they are already plagued with the trouble of choosing between paying for medical treatment versus paying for food or basic life necessities. This study highlights that effective care of homeless people is associated with providing a welcoming environment by all members of the healthcare team, and I find that to be a very important takeaway. I think the worst part about researching the information for these last two podcasts is the fact that there are so many of these heartbreaking and eye-opening stories out there, but not all of them are heard by us. I remember listening back on these case studies and thinking, maybe I shouldn't post these episodes because these providers were probably just a couple of bad apples, so to speak. But then I realized this is why prejudice continues to be perpetuated. It's the making excuses for actions instead of learning from them.
Working in the medical field, we are all expected to abide by ethical standards, one of the most important being primum non nocere, first, do no harm. I hope these case studies have helped to demonstrate that we can't do that if our judgments are clouded with bias. Please tune in to the next episode to discuss highly researched treatment strategies to decrease bias and prejudice in your practice. And as always, thanks for listening, guys.